0: Ready and prepared spiritually to focus on the Word, to study this evening. Scripture teaches that we're either walking by the Spirit or walking by the sin nature, one or the other. And it's only when we're walking by the Spirit that we are producing that which has eternal value and significance. And it's only when we're walking by the Spirit that God, the Holy Spirit, can take what we learn in the Word and apply it to our life, store it for our future use spiritually. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure we're ready ready to focus and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening. With all the many things that go on in the world around us as we watch the news, as we read uh, various reports either on the Internet or in various uh, various journals and newspapers, we continue to see uh, so many distressing things around the world. The economy, we see uh, distressing things in relation to uh, the Middle East, increasing hostility in many countries towards Jews, increasing hostility toward Israel, the increase of the uh, ISIS uh, and terrorism in not only in the uh, Middle East, but their uh, arms and extensions and, their, uh, and, and many different cells around the world. And, Father, there there's so much danger that lurks. Yet when we put our eyes upon you, we can relax. We can focus on the truth. We know you're in control and that our job, our mission, is still the same. It doesn't matter what is going on around us, whether it has to do with world affairs or just the various minor crises or major crises that are going on in our own work or in our own lives. The issue is the same, to trust in you, walk by the Spirit, and apply the Word. And Father, we pray as we study this evening that uh, we can learn a, a tremendous amount and see the examples and the patterns that are in the life of Peter that can encourage and strengthen us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to... We'll let you start at... Luke chapter 5. We won't get there for a while, but uh, when we start, that's where we'll start. We're continuing our study in 1 Peter. We did a flyover last week. Tonight we're going to start with the first verse, and the first verse and the first word begins with Peter, and the first verse begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the diaspora are, as I've translated it, the resident aliens. These are Jews who are living in the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, as we work through this salutation, especially in the, the Petrine epistles, I think it's important to stop, break it down word for word to understand some of these, these areas and these people. And so we're going to start with the first word, Peter. And we will do a flyover, sort of. It'll take us a couple of weeks to go through the life of Peter. And this is really interesting. I've never broken down Peter's life before in this chronological way. And it was interesting to see some of the patterns that show up there. So I wanted to hit major events in the life of Peter. Peter, and some significant things. So we're going to start with that this evening, and we'll start with his background and family. His background is that he's a Galilean. He uh, was reared by his family in Bethsaida. His father's name was Jonas or John, and we don't know his mother's name. He had one brother that we know of, and his name was Andrew, who was also a disciple, he grew up in the town of small town of Bethsaida. Now, here we have a map, and as we go through this and more things that are coming up in Matthew, we're going to be living with our maps. But this shows the area of the Sea of Galilee here, which is in the north. Galilee is in the north. We'll see a larger map a little later on. Samaria is in the south. This is the Jordan River that goes, flows from the north to the south. Above or north of the Sea of Galilee, you have Lake Huldah. And then about 22, 23 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, you have uh, an area we'll be talking about later on, Caesarea Philippi. There were a lot of towns called Caesarea. That's because whenever people really wanted to suck up to the emperor, they would name it after the emperor, Caesarea and so then they would have to be distinguished. The Caesarea we've talked about before, which is way over here on that lower left side of the map on the Mediterranean, was called Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the Sea. And that's where Cornelius the centurion lived. That's where uh, Peter took the gospel to to uh, uh, Cornelius there. But this is Caesarea uh, Philippi up in the north. Uh, which is named for Philip the Tetrarch, one of the sons of Herod the Great. So we're looking at this area around the Sea of Galilee, and a- almost on the north shore, due north, just a little bit east of due north, was the location of Bethsaida. They just, uh, th- this was discovered, they thought, about 150 years ago, um, And recently it's been confirmed, this was probably the site of Bethsaida, on tours we've driven past it because there's not a whole lot there, maybe the size of this room. And it's about a mile maybe now or less, maybe a little bit less from the the water, maybe half a mile from the water. Capernaum is where this yellow, I mean this red arrow points right over here, and so these are the main areas that we're going to talk about in terms of, of Peter's background. So he grew up in Bethsaida, which was another large fishing village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a family-owned business. Peter and Andrew are spoken of as the primary owners in the Gospels, but when Peter leaves to follow the Lord, he leaves it in the hands of his father. And he had a partnership with uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. This gives you a nice uh, overview of the Sea of Galilee and it, we're looking towards the northwest. Uh, Bethsaida would be located opposite on this on the north shore here, and then Capernaum is located in this general area. And those of you who have uh, been to uh, Israel with me in the past, this long pier right here is the pier that's at the uh, where the ancient boat uh, is located at that museum at. at uh, uh, which is where we stayed this last time at the kibbutz that's there so that gives you a nice overview of what this area looks like john 144 tells us that philip was from bethsaida so he's another a third of the disciples who were from bethsaida so what we see is a lot of these uh, young men that followed jesus knew each other and had grown up together In Mark 1.16, we read that as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. In Luke 5.10, we're told that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon. So that gives us about as much background as we can get. Now, the interesting thing when we study... Uh, what we can know about this area in Galilee was that it was a, an extremely populated area dur- during the time of our Lord. If we just look at the scripture, we see several times it's talking about the multitudes coming to him. He fed the 5,000, and another place that he feeds the 4,000, and the text there says that the 4,000 were all men, so it didn't count all the women and children, so there could have been 10 or 12,000 people there. So the scriptures indicate that there were uh, very large towns and villages in the area, and Josephus, even though he may exaggerate a little bit, says that the the Galilee was just covered with towns and villages, the smallest of which were all at least 15,000 people or more. Now, I think he's exaggerating, but even if you cut that, even if he's doubled the numbers... That's a very large population, and it's interesting that uh, in this, this area, which the Scripture says was where Jesus did most of his miracles and did a lot of his preaching, that this is an area that rejected his claim as Messiah, and as a result, uh, it was going to be judged and wiped out, and very few of these villages can even be found today. And those that have been found, it doesn't look like they were, they were very large, except for the uh, eyewitness account uh, of Josephus. Now, Peter's birth name was Simon, which was a Greek form of the Hebrew word simeon, uh, or, or shimeon, one of the sons of Jacob, although most of the Jews weren't named for that, it was a name uh, that was given probably for the same reason that Jacob named his son Shimeon, is that the root meaning of the word has to do with hearing or hearing and obeying. And so it was a common Jewish name. There were uh, some uh, 11 different uh, Simons or Simeons uh, in the New Testament So it was a very, very common name, and he was called his full name, and when Jesus wanted to get his attention, he would call him Simon Bar-Jonah, just like your mom might call you by all three of your names when she wanted to get your attention. So Jesus would call him Simon Bar-Jonah. The bar is is the Aramaic that's the equivalent of the Hebrew word ben, meaning the son of. So it would be uh, translated for us as Simon, son of John, or Simon Johnson. We also know that Peter was married in mark one thirty we're told about he had a mother- his wife he had a mother in law have a mother in law you have to have a wife first corinthians nine five he traveled with his wife. Paul talks about that he says the other apostles, including Cephas, would travel and take their wife with him with them and expect the churches to support them, which Paul said was fine. he chose. Instead, take another option, which is a great passage for understanding uh, some of the different uh, what we call gray areas in scriptures or areas of non-absolutes. That in terms of funding and financial support for ministries, it's up to each individual uh, before the Lord that there's no one set pattern. Sometimes we get people who think that, well, there's one way of doing it, and that's the only right way of doing it. And yet the scriptures, ha- ha- the scripture has a clear example in First Corinthians nine that Paul says no. There are many different ways to do it, none of which is right. Doing a- supporting the pastor and his wife, not supporting them, either one's fine. A uh, lot of application there. So that's his uh, background, his and his uh, an understanding of his family. What we do see is that that from his house, and I didn't bring any pictures of his house, but it, they're pretty sure where his house is located, and it's probably 50 yards from the synagogue. So he would have had, in Capernaum, he would have availed himself of the instruction of the synagogue. Even though Peter was called by the Pharisees uh, unlearned, that simply meant that he hadn't gone to the right schools. You know, some people are that way in the United States. If you haven't gone to an Ivy League school, you're not very educated. And so they're very, the Pharisees were snobbish like that. But he was educated. It's, it, it, the Greek of First Peter is a difficult Greek, indicating not that he didn't know how to write, but that he wrote very well and wrote with a sophisticated hand. So that tells us something about his background and that he would have availed himself of education. The other thing that we see is that his brother Andrew is specifically stated to be a disciple of John the Baptist, as are james and john the sons of zebedee and peter was at, at may have been a disciple of john the baptist at the very least he was uh, involved and listening to john the baptist with his brother because as soon as jesus uh, as soon as andrew decided to follow jesus and I was and I, and saw that john identified jesus john the baptist identified jesus As the Lamb of God, Andrew went off to get Peter right away, and he didn't have to travel all the way up to uh, uh, Capernaum in order to get him. So uh, it appears that Peter was in the neighborhood of where John the Baptist was baptizing near Bethany across the Jordan. So all of that tells us that Peter was very positive uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were very positive. Of course, James and John were part of the family. They're first cousins of Jesus also, uh, as John the Baptist was, and they were business partners with Peter and Andrew. So they were all very positive. They were interested in uh, learning what John the Baptist had to say about the coming of the Messiah and being prepared for the Messiah, looking and anticipating uh, the coming of the Messiah. So they had a strong, positive volition Long before John the Baptist or Jesus showed up on the scene. Now, the first event that we see is when Peter meets Jesus, and this is described in John chapter 1, verses 41 and 42. Now, there's a series of events that take place over a three day period that are described in John chapter 1. We have one day, another day, and then the next day. On the first day, the Pharisees came out to examine John. This was part of this typical procedure. Whenever anybody was uh, suspected of making a claim to the Messiah, the Pharisees would come out and just watch and listen for a while. After that first visit, then if they wanted more information, they would come out and they would begin asking questions. This was what was going on at that point. They were asking questions about, John, who are you? Are are, are you Elijah? Are are you the Messiah? Who are you? So on the first day, they came out to uh, examine John. Then on the second day, Jesus showed up. Now, this is the second time that Jesus showed up for John the Baptist. He had already been baptized, according to the synoptics. Jesus came to John. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John baptized Jesus and then immediately Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And there he was uh, tested by, for 40 days, the three major uh, temptations by, by Satan. And then he came back to the area where John the Baptist was. And this is where we pick up the story in John 1. As Jesus showed up uh, following the 40 days in, in the uh, wilderness he um, john again announced behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world in john 129 then we come to the next day and john the baptist is standing there with two of his disciples we're not told who one of them is but one of them is identified as andrew and when he when john the baptist saw jesus he says behold the lamb of god and immediately andrew and the other disciple left john and began to follow uh, follow Jesus. And then we're told in verse 41 that he went to get his brother uh, Simon. And verse 41 reads, he first finds his own brother Simon and says to him, we found the Messiah, and then he led him to Jesus. Jesus looked at Simon and said, you're Simon, the son of Jonas. This indicates that he's he, he had never met Simon before didn't know anything about him indicates the omniscience of the deity of Christ. Thou art Simon, the son of Joseph. You will be called Kepha. You will be called Kepha, which is translated a stone. Now that's the Aramaic word for a stone, and it uh, it usually refers to a large or massive stone, according to one source that I uh, that I read. So following that, then we go back to another map. This one shows more of the area of Israel at that time. We have Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and running down, down the from north to south here, we have the Jordan River running from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. The circles down here, this circle on the lower left indicates Jerusalem. The larger circle just above the Sea of Galilee Represents the area of Jericho on the left, and on the right, somewhere near that purple uh, marker there, is the location of Bethany across the Jordan, which is where John was baptizing. Then this circle here represents Sychar. This is in John 4, when Jesus uh, talked to the woman at the well. Then, when we get up north, I circled uh, Cana of Galilee, where Jesus performed his first miracle, and then this circle here is to cover uh the areas where around Capernaum where uh, Jesus lived and where peter Peter and uh Andrew lived. so let's get the chronology down. Jesus first showed up with John the Baptist down in this area, Bethany across the Jordan, then he's baptized in the Jordan goes up into this mountainous desert area to the west of Jericho for 40 days where he's, he's uh, tempted by Satan. Then he comes back down to John. This is where we have the, the uh, conversation that we just saw where John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the, as the Lamb of God to Andrew and another disciple. And then from there, Jesus is going to leave, and he's going to head back to Capernaum. Then he will go to Cana of Galilee and perform the first miracle there, and his disciples are with him. So Andrew and Philip and uh, uh, Nathaniel and Peter are with Jesus there at, at Cana, and then they will go with Jesus down to Jerusalem for the first Passover. Following the first Passover, they're going to leave Jerusalem. That's where they had a That's where Jesus had the first cleansing of the temple at the end of John 2. And this is where Jesus has his conversation with Nicodemus, telling him that he won't get into the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. That's the beginning of John 3. Then they left Jerusalem, and they head back through Samaria, which is where Jesus has his conversation with the woman at Jacob's well uh, in Sychar. Then they're going to leave there and head back up to Capernaum. And when they get back to Capernaum, the boys all go back to work. They all have jobs. They all have careers. They all go back to work. Jesus hasn't called them uh, to be his disciples yet. They are followers of Jesus. They already believe he is the Messiah. But at this stage in his ministry, Jesus really hasn't developed his public ministry. Somewhere about that time, John the Baptist is going to be arrested and put in prison, and it is at that point, according to Mark 1, 14-15, that John the Baptist is arrested, and Mark tells us that after John the Baptist was arrested, then Jesus began his public ministry. We're told that he first went to Nazareth, his hometown, which is right here, and he taught in the synagogue, and the people rejected him, and they took him to a, a, a cliff and were going to stone him. And he just sort of disappeared in, in the confusion and the crowd. And after that, he left Nazareth, and he moves to Capernaum, which is the home of Peter and Andrew. And then we're told in uh, Luke 4... Uh, Thirty-one to forty-four. That Jesus began to teach on the Sabbaths. It's plural. He teaches on the Sabbaths in Capernaum, and so on the Sabbath in the synagogue service, Peter and uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John are there, and they're hearing him teach. And at that same time, he casts out a demon, and then he leaves the synagogue and he heals Peter's mother-in-law on his way to uh, Sabbath lunch. And it's after that that, after all those things have taken place, that we see the first major or the first major event is when Jesus meets meets uh, Peter, and then we see the second major event, and this is in Luke chapter five. So turn with me to, if you're not there already, uh, go to Luke chapter five. Luke chapter 5, this is when Jesus begins to uh, call his disciples. So we find out initially that Jesus is carrying on a ministry by Lake Gennesar. That's the name, uh, that's the actual name. It's still called that, Gennesar. Uh, Here it's written in the New King James as Gennesaret. Uh, It's also translated Sea of Galilee and other places, but it's uh, Lake Gennesar and he is standing by the and he has a multitude pressed about him huge crowd to hear the word of god verse 1 and he is there on a beach by the by the lake and he saw two boats standing by the lake and the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets and he got into one of the boats which was simon's and asked him to put out a little from the land he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat that's a nice Platform, nice pulpit, and if if it's still, it's not too bad. I can imagine if the water was rough, it'd be a little uh, bit of a struggle to keep your balance. But so he is out on the boat talking to the group, and when he finishes, he tells Simon to go out into the water and to cast his nets into the deep for a catch, and Simon. We just see a little bit of his character here. He's he's a little bit stubborn. He's outspoken. He says, but, Lord, we've been fishing all night long. We have worn ourselves out, and we haven't caught a thing. There hasn't been a nibble, and we are exhausted. And so Jesus says, and he says, nevertheless, we're going to do what you say to do. And he puts down the net. And they brought in such a huge catch of fish that the nets began to tear. And another boat, which is the boat belonging to James and John, had to come up uh, next to them in order to help them. And they filled both of their boats with all the fish. So Jesus' teaching is that he can supply all of their needs and beyond anything they can ever imagine. Because what Jesus is about to tell them to do is to follow him, And they're going to have to leave their businesses. And he's making the point that if you leave your businesses, you don't have to worry about your logistical needs. I'm going to take care of you. There'll be plenty of food. There'll be a roof over your head. We're going to take care of everything. So, uh, but as soon as they brought something also very instructive takes place here in regard to Peter's character is that as soon as the boats are filled up and he sees this massive catch of fish, what does Peter say? He immediately makes a theological connection. He immediately falls at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Why would he say that unless he understood the deity of Christ at that point? That, he, that Jesus is not sinful. Jesus is righteous. This is why he recognizes his own sinfulness there. So this tells us quite a bit about Peter's spiritual perspicacity at this point. He's not quite as dense as he, as he appears to be later on. He immediately recognizes his own sinfulness and the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness of God. Incidentally, a miracle similar to this occurs again at the end of John, which perhaps we'll get to tonight. So after this, Jesus is calling his disciples to leave their occupations and to follow him, and they follow him. And the promise in verse 10 is, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now, to follow Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you have to go into vocational ministry, which is what they're doing at this point. But it does mean that you have to be willing to give up everything. And because and, and we have to come to understand that everything that we have is really the Lord's. The job that you have, the cars that you have, the toys that you have, everything that we have is from the Lord. And we have to relax and let the put the and put the Lord in control, let the Lord have control of our life. Because He's the one who's guiding and directing things. And so Peter comes to understand this at this point and begins to follow. Now as Peter, I mean excuse me, as Jesus conducts his ministry and this is the, his first tour of, of the Galilee, we usually find in all of the Gospels at this point, a list of the disciples, a list of the twelve. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Acts all have lists. John doesn't have a list. The other uh, four lists are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. What's interesting is that Peter is always listed first in the list. He is. This is a way of presenting him as the leader of the disciples. So what we've seen is that Peter meets Jesus in John 1. He's called to be a disciple in Luke 5, 1 to 11. Then he's sent out with the other 12 to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. That's what we've been studying on Sunday mornings in Matthew 10. And then the next major event in Peter's life, is that he is going to walk on the water. The only person we know of that did that. I mean, if that was some of you, can you I, I was thinking about this. If some of you were like me, if we were on that boat, we would all be jumping out of the boat because we want to walk on the water too. Isn't that right, Jeff? We want to try that. Whenever a new toy comes along, we're always ready for that new toy and that excitement. But all the other guys are sitting there. Peter's the only one who seems to have the faith to even want to try it and to walk on the water. So to look at this episode, let's turn to Matthew 14, uh, verse 22. Matthew 14, verse 22. Now it's at night. We're told that it is between roughly 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning. That may be why they didn't want to jump out on the boat, because they were still trying to get the sleep out of their eyes. But they've been fighting. It's been a storm during the night, and they've been fighting it. They're tired. Uh, they probably weren't looking for any fun. And uh, so Jesus had sent them across to the other side, and then they spend the night in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, verse 24. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus came to them walking on the sea, verse 25. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. That means they were upset. They they thought it was a ghost. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, said, said be of good cheer, don't be afraid. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So this is the second thing we see of Peter's character. He is... He is very gregarious. He's out there, and he is outspoken, and sometimes that gets him in trouble, but he is certainly the one who's going to be involved and in front of everybody. So Peter, um, so the Lord said, Come, and when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, this is a great episode because, again, it's emphasizing that Peter is learning to trust the Lord. But like most of us, we learn to trust the Lord, and then we immediately do what? Stop trusting the Lord, and we get our eyes on circumstances, and that's what happened to Peter. Peter gets out, and he walks on the water, and he saw, I love the New King James here when he saw that the wind was boisterous. I think boisterous is probably what Peter was, but the wind was boisterous, and so Peter all of a sudden got his eyes on the details. He got his eyes on the, and that's what we do. We get our eyes on our bank account. We get our eyes on the fact that that maybe the economy is not doing so good. We get our eyes on on, on aspects of our health instead of putting our focus upon the Lord and just uh, relaxing and trusting in him. And as soon as he put his eyes on the circumstances, what happened? It didn't take a week or two. He immediately began to sink. I think that's a good illustration that as soon as we take our eyes off of that walk by the Holy Spirit we immediately plunge into carnality and and we're walking according to the sin nature. It's instantaneous. And so as long as he's focused on Jesus then he is walking on the water, but instantly when he takes his eyes off and Jesus rebukes him and says, "O ye of little faith, why did you doubt?" When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. I, I just love how these things happen. I wonder what people on the shore were thinking. If, if I've been on the Sea of Galilee when the winds have been up and when the when the waves have been up a little bit, and it, and and I've been on other lakes when it's been stormy, and it doesn't just stop on a dime. It doesn't stop one second. It's stormy, and the next minute it stopped. So this if this was happening on the whole lake. Then people who lived around the lake would around the lake would be hearing all of the the wind howling, and then all of a sudden it just would stop. You wonder what they were thinking. Anyway, that's beside the point. So those that were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, "Truly, you are the Son of God." So what we've seen already is that Peter recognizes that he is God. He's righteous. When he, when he falls down before him and says, depart from me because I'm a sinner. And here, as a result of this miracle, walking on the water, they all recognize that he is the Son of God. And yet, this is a, something they, they're convinced of, but there's a growing understanding and conviction of this as, as time goes by. So Peter's faith and his uh, trust in the Lord then... Uh, develops in that episode. And then the next episode, the fifth major episode, is in John chapter 6. So turn with me to John chapter 6, and this again illustrates something about Peter's character and Peter's recognition of what is going on. In John chapter 6, which is a, a very long chapter, this is the feeding of the 5,000, the bread of life discourse. And after this, as he sits down and he states some of the conditions for being a disciple and following him, we're told in verse 60, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And they began to leave him. And we get down to verse 67 and <clears throat> verse 66 says many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more then Jesus said to the 12 do you also want to go away so he's evaluating their commitment have you given up yet like everybody else and it's Simon Peter who answers again as a leader of as a leader of the 12 lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life wow what a statement lord The only thing that matters in life is that we know our lives have an eternal significance and and eternal value, and you're the only one who can tell us how to do that. Nobody else speaks about eternity. You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. And so in verse 69, Peter goes on to say, Also, we have come to believe, that's John's key term about salvation. We have come to believe and know that you are the Mashiach, the son of the living God. Now in, in Ma- Matthew 14, they all said, you're the son of God. Now it expands to you are the son of the living God. The term the living God is always used in, uh, in, in, in the Old Testament to distinguish the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from all of the idols of metal, wood, and stone. And so here Peter is saying, you're the son of the living God. We know that you are, again, it's an affirmation of deity. They're recognizing he's the Messiah and he's the Son of the living God. He is deity. Now, the next episode I want to go to is in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and this is the one that we'll spend a little more time on. Matthew chapter 16, because this is when uh, Jesus explains Peter's nickname. He gave him the nickname of Kephas. In John chapter 1, but it's in Matthew chapter 16 that he ac- explains this. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, we read, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now I pointed out on the map, this is all the way in the north, it's just a little bit north of, of, of Dan, the city of Dan. And whenever you read the description of the extent of the borders of Israel in the Old Testament, it always says from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the farthest point, uh, just about in the north. It's just below Mount Hermon, and Beersheba is down in the Negev, far to the south. So this is Caesarea Philippi was a, a Gentile uh, city built by uh, Philip, uh, the Tetrarch, and it was a, uh, a Roman city. And they they go up there, so they've gone to a Gentile area it's about 25 or so miles north of Capernaum. And while they get there, Jesus asks a question. Now he picks his location. And those of you who've been there with me know because we've sat there, and we've had a Bible study every year. I have Dan Ingram teaches this this, uh, this this section of the Bible study there, and we come there, and Jesus is going to use a word play here. But it's a wordplay that you you sort of miss a little bit of the pun because you don't see the area in the neighborhood. And we'll see some pictures of it in just a minute. So Jesus says, well, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And he uses this title, Son of Man, which comes out of Daniel 7, which is clearly understood messianic titled, Son of Man, is the one who's identified as the future king, the Messiah, to whom the ancient of days God the Father is going to give the kingdom. And when God the Father gives him the kingdom, the Son of Man will come and establish the kingdom. So this fits within this messianic kingdom message that we have all through Matthew. So Jesus says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they say, now the they refers to the twelve. They say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist because by this time, John the Baptist had died. And so some people think that, that, remember, John the Baptist was put in prison before uh, Jesus started his public ministry. So some people say, well, this is sort of a resurrection kind of thing. doesn't make sense, but that's what they said. Who said people make sense? Read the paper. Some Elijah and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. Now, Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And when, he, when Jesus says this, it's, it's emphatic. He says, you, who do you say that I am? He wants to know what they believe. Now, we've already seen them say he's the son of God. Then we saw him say, Peter say, we all believe that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so now Peter is going to answer again for the group. He's the leader. Peter, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Another clear statement that they recognize who Jesus is. And then Jesus responds to that in Matthew 16, 17, and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, blessed uh, indicates not some special status, but it indicates that God has uh, privileged him. And this is what Jesus is going to say at the end. He says, Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... You've been blessed with this understanding. God the Father has revealed this to you. Now He's not saying God the Father has only revealed this to you, but He is saying that that for anyone who comes to this understanding, it's because God has made this clear to them. God has revealed it to them. And then He's going to introduce this little word plate. and He says, "And I also, I say unto you that you are Peter." And here, this is the the Greek word petros, which means rock. It's one of the one of the ways you can translate. Uh, Kepha, Peter Petras, and on this rock, and that's the breakout here, Petra, it's a feminine singular, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, when he says this, you have to understand the background. Here he is at, this is the location of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is a massive rock escarpment that is in the background, so he's playing off of his location. This is what it looked like according to an artist depiction uh, that's present there at the site. They had a temple to Jupiter over here on the left, and then they had a temple here to Pan, the um, uh, figure in Greek mythology. Now, Arabs can't say the letter P, so they say the letter B, so Panias became Banias. That's why it's called Banyas today. Um, over here, you have this huge uh, top of this black hole that is located behind the Temple to Jupiter. Now, if we go back to the present site, this is that black hole right here, which was believed to have been one of the entrances to Hades and that if you wanted to satisfy the god Pan, then you would throw a human sacrifice down this hole, and there it, it was water down there, and if there was no blood, then he accepted the sacrifice, and if you saw blood float to the surface, then he didn't accept the sacrifice. So this is this is the location here with this massive rock escarpment in the background and explains why Jesus is bringing out this point about uh, the gates of hades and he says and and this is a very inter- important passage as well he's not only making this play on words in terms of the name peter and uh, petros and petra but this is the first mention of the word church and it's in the future tense i will build it's not there now i will build my church on the future but lest we get ahead of ourselves, we get to this point. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there are three basic views, and you're probably familiar with at least one of them, that are taken in terms of uh, trying to explain uh, the meaning of this passage. The first view identifies Peter as the rock. This is a view that is popular among Roman Catholics. It's the official Roman Catholic interpretation that here Jesus is saying Peter is this rock that he's going to build a church on, and he is giving uh, Peter uh, authority over the church, and that Peter is the first pope, and he, that authority is going to be handed down from generation to generation. One of the many problems with that, other than the exegetical problems, is that no bishop of Rome, and up until about the 4th century, that's all you had. You had bishops in Key cities you had the Bishop of Rome, the Bishop of Constantinople, the Bishop of Antioch, the Bishop of Jerusalem, and the Bishop of alexandria and those were your um, those were your five major bishoprics, and they competed with each other they 're in a power struggle, but in two hundred and fifty Stephen uh, I think it was Stephen the who's the Pope of the, excuse me, the Bishop of Rome, is the first to assert that he has universal authority over the whole church. Guess what the rest of the church did? They laughed at him. Who are you? Those guys in Constantinople, and Antioch, Jerusalem, and and Alexandria weren't giving up any of their authority to this guy in 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 uh, in Rome. How silly! But see, that's in 250. Over the next 200 years, you have uh, four major uh, Christological uh, uh, Controversies that that develop, calling for different councils to try to settle these theological discrepancies. You have the Council of Nicaea, and you have the Council of Ephesus, and the Council of Constantinople, and finally the Council of Chalcedon. As they're working out the relationship between the humanity and the deity in Christ, and the relationship between Jesus and the Father, and in each of these different different councils, one of these bishops is going to really flash his drawers on how ignorant he is doctrinally. And at the end of that 200 period, the only bishop that hasn't, the only bishopric that hasn't gone on the side of a heresy at one point or another is the Bishop of Rome. And so at this point, he began, the Bishop of Rome begins to uh, consolidate his power because he can say, look, all you other guys, obviously you don't have the truth because at one point or another you've sided with heresy. So that was one of the times. So you really don't have this idea of, uh, uh, of the Pope as it came to be uh, emphasized in terms of its universal power in the early Middle Ages at all in the early church. It's just not there. The history doesn't doesn't uh, support it so what's the roman catholic response to that well probably the most common response is well nobody claimed that authority because they were just too humble peter was too humble the other uh the other bishops of rome up until 250 were just too humble to assert their authority okay well so what you're saying is from 250 on they're too arrogant that's the flip side the other way to look at it is that, that they were all really failures as leaders because they were given, if they were given this kind of authority by the Lord and they didn't use it, then they were failures as leaders. So, whatever the response is, the, the Roman Catholic argument just really doesn't hold any, any water. But it certainly doesn't hold any water when we look at what, what the Scripture says. What, when Jesus talks about on this rock, The first attempt to solve that is that he's talking about Peter personally. Now, some Protestants take it that way, but they say he's talking about Peter because he's the leader, and obviously he's the leader all the way through Acts. He's the one who opens the door to the church, to the Samaritans, and to the Gentiles. Peter's there every single time. He's there at Pentecost. He's there at the Samaritan Pentecost. He's there... Uh, bringing the Gentiles into the church. So he's obviously the leader. He's the one who preached on the day of Pentecost. But that, that that's true that he's the leader, but that's probably not what this is talking about. It's talking about a rock. And the rock that we see in Scripture is a rock that is alluded to by Jesus several times. He's the rock of stumbling. Psalm 118.22, the chief cornerstone, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief Cornerstone, that's Jesus. In First Peter 2.4, Jesus re- uh, Peter recognizes this, and he says in First Peter two four and five, to whom coming a living stone cast away indeed is worthless by men, but with God chosen, precious yourselves also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. See, he's connecting this, developing this ed- the spiritual edifice of the church back to what Jesus is saying in uh, Matthew chapter 16. So that's the second view, is that Jesus is really referring to himself. The third view, uh, which some uh, a lot of Protestants held to initially in the Protestant Reformation, was that uh, this rock simply referred to the affirmation that, that uh, Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But in light of Scripture and comparison of Scripture with Scripture, and looking at the broad scriptural context, what we see is that this, the rock that the church is built upon is the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, the Lord says to Peter in Matthew sixteen nineteen, "And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven." This is what gave rise to the idea that when, and uh, Revelation talks about the gates like pearls in heaven. Uh, so there's a connection that Peter's sitting at the pearly gates, and he's got the keys, and he's going to decide who gets in and who doesn't get in. But that ha- is not what this is talking about. It's talking about the keys of the kingdom of heaven has to do with power and authority, and this is w- the power and the authority is to proclaim the gospel. These guys guarded the gospel and were the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. The apostles and the prophets were the foundation of the church. So it, it's referencing their power and their authority. And then we have a bad translation because the Greek uses a perfect participle, and it's a little awkward to state it in, in English. Whoever you bind upon the earth, in other words, what this is your authority, the authority of the apostles. Whatever you bind on the earth will have already been bound in heaven. In other words, God establishes the, the absolutes in heaven and then they carry it out upon the earth whatever shall be bound will have already been bound in the heavens and whatever you may loose on the earth shall have already been should be loosed type that in wrong should have already been loosed in the heavens then he enjoined on his disciples that they should say no uh, they should say to no man that he was the Christ now here again we have one of these places where Jesus says don't tell anybody because he doesn't want to get the Pharisees all riled up ahead of time before it's the right time for him to be crucified, because he has to be crucified according to the timetable given given in Daniel. And then the next episode, which is just a little bit further down in this chapter, is that after he's made this important statement to, to Peter, and Peter has clearly identified who Jesus is, Then Jesus begins to teach them about his coming crucifixion. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And Peter took him aside. Can't you just see this? Peter comes up and puts his arm around the Lord and says, Lord, wait a minute, wait a minute, before you go any further, let's have a little conversation about this. Far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. We're not going to let anything bad happen to you. And the Lord then turns around and calls Peter Satan. Just a minute ago, he said, he's got a play on his name, and he says, we're going to build a church on this on, on this rock, meaning himself. But he praises Peter because he recognizes who Jesus is. And now he turns around and says, you're Satan. Get behind me. Get out of here. Get out of my way. So Peter has to learn a little more humility. So the seventh incident is the one where he uh, tells Peter, to get behind me, Satan, you're an offense to me. Therefore, uh, for your mind is not on the things that are of God. Let's have a little application here. If you're not focused on God as a priority in your life, then you're a pawn of Satan. And if you're a pawn of Satan, then Jesus can accurately refer to you as Satan. Because that's who you're serving. That's who I'm serving. When we're out of fellowship, we're ne- when we're not focusing on biblical priorities and making the word of God the priority in our life, then we are Satan's pawn. And that's what he's saying to, to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense for because your mind is not on the things that are of God but on the things that are of men. Your priorities, your time usage... The the things you're spending your money on, your hopes and your dreams are not shaped by Scripture. They're shaped by your culture. Therefore, you're a, a tool of Satan. Now, the next episode is in the next chapter, Matthew 17. So we see a lot of Peter. This is preview of coming attractions in Matthew. After six days, so this is a week later, a week later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, Jesus had just said at the end of the last chapter that there were some standing there among the disciples who would not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, a week later, they're going to see Jesus coming in his kingdom. So what happens is they go up on this mount, somewhere down around the Sea of Galilee. There's a couple of traditional locations, but nobody knows where this was. It was likely because they were up north uh, on one of the ridges of, of Mount Hermon. He takes these three guys up with him on, on a high hill or high mountain by themselves, and he's transfigured before them, and they see his glory. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become like, like white raiment. And not only that, but Moses, who represents the law, and the law was a witness of Messiah, and then Elijah, who represents the prophets, and the prophets testified of the Messiah. Elijah and Moses show up having a conversation with Jesus. And Peter, again, just, he's got to speak fast. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles. Let's erect three lean-tos, one for each of you what he's doing is he's putting Jesus in the same category as Elijah and Moses but Jesus is distinct and the and God the Father doesn't want uh Peter to make that mistake and we're told in verse 5 while he was still speaking behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased hear him. Now just a side note, if Peter was given the kind of authority the Roman Catholic Church says Peter should have, that he's going to be infallible, then it didn't last long. Because he makes a big mistake right away. And we saw that when he, when he told Jesus, Now wait a minute, you're not going to die. And now he makes a second mistake. So the Scriptures just don't support Peter as being infallible at all. But the Father interrupts him and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Shut your mouth. You can't learn anything while you're talking. Shut your mouth and listen. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces. They are greatly afraid. They're trembling. And Jesus then came and touched them and said, Rise up, don't be afraid, and when they open their eyes, Moses and Elijah are gone and everything's back to normal. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. Now Peter learns another principle, and I want to wrap up with two things. We have about five more minutes to go, and I want to hit both of these. In Matthew 18, these guys, just as a side note, the disciples get into argument who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, if Jesus had really met, if they understood Jesus to mean Peter's the, the, the head honcho, then they wouldn't be having this argument. So obviously they didn't understand him to be saying that Peter's going to be the main guy. So they're having an argument about who's going to be the greatest in, in, king, in, in the kingdom. Uh, Jesus uh, tells uh, a, a couple of, um, uh, of parables. And then we come to uh, verse 21. And verse 21 Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him up to seven times? Now, this is, this, there's a pattern here in these last few times that we see Peter talking. It says, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Who's going to really need forgiveness in a couple of weeks? It's Peter. So we see there's a pattern of Peter being taught about forgiveness what divine forgiveness is all about that we are to emulate. And he says, how many times should I forgive when my brother sins against me? Up to seven times? That sounds reasonable. I'm being generous, not just once or twice. But I'll forgive him seven times. And then Jesus says to him, I say not to thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now, seven is a number of completion. Seventy-seven would mean you're just going to do it forever. It doesn't matter how many times somebody comes to you, somebody offends you, uh, you're going to forgive them as many times as they come and they ask forgiveness, period, End, end of story. You have to understand grace, Peter, and grace means that you forgive those who sin against you. Okay, that's the lesson in this particular episode. Then we come to the next episode in John 13. This is an episode we have seen and studied many, many times, but let's just turn there very quickly, and I'm just going to hit the high points here so you can understand what John 13 is all about. John 13 is not about what a lot of people think it's about. It's not about simply serving one another. That's not the point. The point, the way you often find the point is to go to the end, and the end is in John thirteen thirty four and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you love one another. If you love one another, you forgive one another. And that's what he's going to demonstrate in, in the uh, object lesson at the Seder meal. Comes in, they have the Seder meal, everything sat down. There. It's the night before Jesus goes to the cross. They're going to celebrate Passover. And... He's going to do something different. He's going to. Jesus is going to stand up. He's going to take the basin. He's going to strip down to the waist, and he's going to start washing all of their feet. And he comes to, um, you will come to verse five. He poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now the Greek word there for wash is the word nipto, which indicates just washing part of your body. Like if you're going to wash your hands, wash your feet, the verb nipto is there. If you're going to take a bath, the word "luo" o is there, L-O-U-O. So this is Nipto. So he's just washing the disciples' feet, wipes them down with the towel. Then he comes to Simon Peter, and Peter says to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? No. See, again, we see Peter talking before he thinks. And Jesus said, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but you'll know after this. So it wasn't clear to these guys what the point was in this lesson at this point. He's just giving them the object lesson. And then Peter said, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Still using the word nipto. And then Jesus answered and said, if I do not wash you, nipto, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now, this isn't a part like a part in a movie, a part in a TV show and a part in a play. This is miros. It's the portion of an inheritance And Jesus is saying, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no inheritance with me. Now, in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint uses these two words. The Hebrew word for wash is the same for whether it's partial or complete. And if you go back to Exodus and you look at the passages talking about the anointing of the high priest, when Aaron is, is inducted into the office, he and his sons take a full bath. They never again take a full ritual bath. Okay, they took regular baths, but they never again take a full ritual bath. After that, whenever they come to serve in the temple, all they do is wash their hands and wash their feet. So when that's translated into Greek, that initial washing, when they're inaugurated into the ministry, which is related to our positional cleansing at the beginning of, of, of the spiritual life, is that they are fully washed and uses the word luo. The Greek Septuagint for all these subsequent washings of so washing the hands, washing the feet, it uses the word nipto. Jesus is using that same kind of terminology. He says, he who is bathed, that is washed from head to toe, luo, needs only to nipto, wash his feet, but is completely clean. Now, here he's using the word clean as referring to positional uh, at the beginning, but here he's using it as experiential. He's going to use it as, as posi- a, a positional in just a minute. So to recover your full cleansing, you just have to wash wash your, your feet, and you're clean. And then he says, and you all, it's a plural, you all are clean, talking to the disciples. You're all clean, I, I, except for one of you. And then John tells us in verse 11, this is John's editorial comment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to make sure we get the point. He says, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. One of them wasn't a believer. He wasn't positionally cleansed yet, and he never was. And then uh, we're told, verse 12, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he, now he teaches them. He says, You know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and, and for so I am. If, then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now he's not talking Literally. He's talking figuratively. The washing of the feet is forgiveness. It's cleansing. Every time we confess our sins, our feet are washed, metaphorically. Our feet are washed from the sin we've committed. And so Jesus is now saying what you need to do is wash one another's feet. You have to forgive one another. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than him who sent him. So he's teaching Peter again about forgiveness. And guess what? Peter is going to know about forgiveness because the next major event is in Matthew 26, uh, 34 to 35. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to blow it and you're going to deny me. And Jesus said, no, no, Lord, not me. And so we see this warning, Luke 22, 31 and 32. I'm going to end with this. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for y'all. It's a plural you there that's very important. Jesus says, he doesn't say, Satan has asked for for you that he may sift you individually as wheat. He's saying, Satan has asked for permission to sift all y'all like wheat. See, that's that plural of y'all. He wants to sift all y'all like wheat. And then he says to Peter, singles him out in verse 32, he says, but I have prayed for you, singular pronoun. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Notice that little hint of prophecy there. When you've returned to me, there's the hint. And Peter says, wait a minute. Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I'll never be made to stumble. Not me. I'm not going to give you up, Lord. Not me. And then Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. That sets us up, because then we're going to have the crucifixion. Peter isn't heard from. Peter is off drowning in his sorrows because of guilt over denying the Lord. The next time we see Peter, he's alone with probably the only friend he's got left in the world, which is John. And that's when they find out about the resurrection. And we'll start there next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to be... Reminded of, the, of grace, that Peter learned about grace, a major theme in his epistle, as he was learning from the Lord. He learned about the grace of the Lord's love, the grace of forgiveness, and the grace of restoration. And Father, we uh, recognize the importance of learning about grace and implementing that in our own lives. And he learned about who the Lord was, that he's the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that, that, that he is the rock. That is the foundation of the church, the term that's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to you, that you are the rock of our salvation, and that that is who Jesus is. He is the rock of our salvation. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, encourage encourage us, may our confidence in your word and in trusting you be expanded tonight as a result of what we studied. In Christ's name, amen.